This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi and welcome to another edition of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Danny Hewson. This week, the M&A action hots up and joining me to talk about the latest companies being targeted by foreign investors is Tom Sieber from Shares Magazine. Hi, Tom. Hi, Danny. Yes, there's been no let up on this front. And um, this week, it's two defence giants at the heart of the action. But the bids for Ultra Electronics and Megit, respectively, have drawn concern from some quarters um, and both look likely to be scrutinised by the UK government. There's also um, the small matter of whether or not a rival suitor for Megit will finally put up or shut up. And um, this suitor, Transdime, has been given until mid-September by the takeover panel. Australian mining giant BHP has been putting one or two cats among the pigeons with a double whammy of announcements. First, it is upping its ESG creds by exiting from oil and gas. But that huge news was eclipsed by the news that it is scrapping its dual listing and leaving London's blue chip index after 20 years. It's also been a big week for retail in the US. Sales have fallen, leading to the questions about consumer confidence. And we've had a mixed set of results from some of America's biggest retail names, including Walmart and Home Depot. We get the latest numbers from the UK High Street later this week. And I've been chatting to Catherine Shuttleworth, CEO of Savvy Marketing, about why rising prices and shipping delays could result in more retail casualties. Plus, we'll be talking about smishing after a huge rise in parcel scam texts. And Jenny Owen is back with a rather expensive piece of wedding cake. Yeah. Do you like wedding cake, Tom? No, if I'm honest. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm not a big fan of that kind of fruity cake and the, there's too much icing for me. I mean, I probably liked the icing when I was little, but yeah, not anymore. I must admit, we decided not to go that route. So we had a great big chocolate cake instead, which... Uh, out. Yeah, I'd, I'd be well in favour of that, for sure. Yeah. I think we had, we had something sort of fruit-based, but yeah, not not the kind of classic wedding cake, for sure. Well, this particular bit of uh, wedding cake, as you'll find out later on, uh, comes with quite a price tag, but I'm not entirely sure that you'd want to eat it. Uh, but let's start. Um, we seem to have started quite a few of our podcasts recently, by having another chat about UK companies being targeted by foreign investors. And there's a new twist to an old story and also a new deal, both stirring up controversy, both being given a really good look over by the UK government on grounds of national security, Tom. Yes, exactly. So um, we've had the news that Cobham Group has effectively confirmed it's agreed a a 2.6 billion deal for ultra electronics. And then we've had Megit reaffirming its plans to accept a 6.3 billion bid from um, a US business called Parkett Hannafin. Um, the the sort of wrinkle there is that there is a, another bidder for Megit, um, Transdime, that we mentioned earlier. And um, as we said, the takeover panel has confirmed that they have until the 14th of September to make a formal bid or walk away. Yeah, these put up and shut up things, we've been hearing quite a lot about them recently. Yeah. But the the big thing here is that um, just because the UK government has confirmed that it's going to look into these deals and they have cited national security here as a reason for doing that, that there's very little past evidence to suggest that they'll step in and stop the deal 
though they will probably demand certain commitments. Exactly. So yeah, there's I can think of very few, if any, examples where the government's actually stepped in um, to to block a takeover. It, it feels like the UK government's um, less willing to do this, perhaps than than some other um, some other governments around the world. Um, the Cobham has said it will give binding commitments um, to the UK government to safeguard Ultra's contribution both to the economy, to national security, and, and over issues like the pension scheme. Um, and it's worth remembering, I guess, in, in this context, that Cobham was itself the subject of a US takeover not all that long ago. And it's this private equity group that owns Cobham, which is, is effectively now looking to combine it with Ultra Electronics. Um, of course, you know, these defence considerations are going to be at the front and centre of everybody's minds, given the turmoil we're seeing in Afghanistan. Um, and a, a sort of final observation with this deal and, and the deal for Cobham, we're seeing a kind of hollowing out a bit of the aerospace defence sector um, on the London market. And, and I think that's one sort of perhaps underappreciated or, or maybe some people are appreciating it danger with this wave of M&A that we're seeing that the, you know, the net result will be that the breadth and diversity of UK stocks is going to be negatively affected. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy about some of the deals that are in the offing at the moment. And one which has just sparked a huge debate is PMI's bid to take over the British inhaler maker Vectura. Let's catch up on exactly where we are. Um, I mentioned this last week, but since then, the deadline for PMI to sweeten their takeover bid has passed and the board universally recommended it. After that, we had a whole host of medical and charitable professionals really shouting their displeasure, taking hold of any news microphone that they can get their hands on. Now, in this case, because PMI have gone to a takeover model, they need 50% plus one. That's the magic number of yes votes they require. But, you know, with all these shouts, it's putting a huge amount of pressure on investors, some of whom have very publicly stated that they are focused on their ESG credentials, that they're looking at ethical and sustainable investing. And they might not want to back this deal because, of course, it's all caught up with tobacco. And in fact, three big investors have already made commitments to support the rival but lower bid from private equity firm Carlisle. So the numbers do look quite tricky, particularly as there are a number of votes tied up in passive investments as well. Now, PMI, they've been very clear that they're committed to switching out of tobacco to becoming a brand associated with health and wellness. But of course, for some people, that just doesn't sit well, particularly at the moment when they are still making huge profits from manufacturing cigarettes, even if those profits are dwindling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you can you can understand the criticism on ESG grounds. It does feel very much like a, an example of sort of poacher turned gamekeeper. It seems seems quite perverse. I guess perhaps the the kind of devil's advocate or counter argument to that would be to say, do we allow businesses like PMI to change? You know, um, can can we sort of accept that they they will try and sort of shift from from perhaps you know. Um, harmful products like cigarettes into into areas which are um have a more positive impact and i guess that's something which is relevant to the oil and gas sector too where you're seeing the likes of bp and shell trying to transition away from fossil fuels to greener forms of energy 
Yeah, and we're um, going to talk a, a bit more about that later as well, BHP yeah, mentioned absolutely. earlier. Exactly. So, I mean, there's another deal where the kind of there's a countdown on and it's almost stuff, and that's with the the big battle for Morrison's. Um, so, as we record, the, the, the sort of this Friday is the last chance for CDN, CD, and R to up their bids, or for another player to step in to um, trump the the bid from Fortress, another private equity group. Um, one area where there's been quite a lot of speculation, I guess, the wild card scenario is that Amazon comes through with a bid. Um, <clears throat> while that's probably unlikely, it can't entirely be dismissed as hot air given Amazon has an existing relationship with Morrison's. And you know, let's just assume in this um, hypothetical scenario that it were to happen, you could imagine the boardrooms of the other big supermarkets would be very nervous about having the e-commerce giants' tanks parked on their lawn. Yeah, it will be really interesting to see whether or not Amazon does jump in here. I mean, there's been a huge amount of speculation, but in some ways it doesn't really fit because although Morrison's is a supermarket, it's a retailer, it also produces a huge amount of its own food. And that's not really something Amazon has has got into or maybe wants to get into so then you start having a discussion about whether or not they separate the retail part of the business from the manufacturing production part of the business but the the one thing that Morrison's has got going for it is that it's able to keep prices low because it's so involved in production so that could be quite a difficult circle to square now Morrison's really was one of lockdown's retail winners and we're going to be chatting a lot more about the state of retail both in the UK and the US a bit later in the pod but before we move on let's talk about a common theme which is emerging amongst many of the firms being targeted and that is that a lot of them are constituents of the mid-cap 250 rather than the FTSE 100. Yeah, exactly, Danny. Thanks. I mean, this, I guess, makes sense when you consider that from the perspective of, of the company making an acquisition, it makes the deals easier to finance and swallow. Um, you know, these are smaller businesses, perhaps more focused businesses, and that that makes them perhaps more attractive to bidders. Um Shares has actually been doing a bit of an analysis of the FTSE 250, which, as we sort of um, record this, isn't too far away from its all-time highs. And if you look at the difference in performance between this index and the FTSE 100, it's pretty stark. So in the last five years, it's up something, or it's delivered a total return somewhere upwards of 50%. Um, So that's including dividends as well as capital growth. And that's almost double what the FTSE 100 has achieved. And if you go all the way back to when the FTSE 250 was launched um, in October 1992, it's delivered a total return of more than 2,000% compared with 700% for the FTSE 100. So it's it's really delivered um, over, over the long term. That's pretty impressive figure, 2,000%. Plenty of diversity in terms of quality among mid-caps, but there are certain factors which seem to help explain why they've been doing so well. Yeah, exactly. So just sort of by dint of their size, really, FTSE 250 constituents are less mature businesses. And that the, the kind of upshot of that is that they have the potential at least for more growth. So many FTSE 100 stocks will already be leaders in their respective markets. And that means that, you know, for to a large extent, they can't really get extra share of a market. They can only really grow roughly in line um, with the economy. 
whereas mid cap stocks could continue to win market share and you know challenge perhaps more established um market um operators and the the kind of the other point to make is that you know while that would apply to kind of very small companies as well they're better established than these smaller companies they've been around for longer most of them produce revenue cash flow and therefore they're less prone to outright business failure um and i mean we, we pointed out there that you know a lot of them or I, I pointed out that a lot of them will be producing revenue but they might well be in the early stages of, of kind of the earnings growth potential and particularly those that kind of sit at the lower end of the market cap spectrum. Um, if we compare them to FTSE 100 stocks, if you, if you look at a FTSE 100, FTSE 100 stock, it's almost like a super tanker. So, you know, a small, a, a kind of even a, a fairly significant contract win might not do that much to change the course of a share price unless the contract wins valued in, in you know, the hundreds of millions of pounds or even more. Whereas, you know, a mid-cap stock could announce a contract of a more modest size but that could drive significant earnings upgrades and drive the share price and the final point to make is that really this is kind of the um this is the pool from which the FTSE 100 companies of the future are are drawn Um, and there are plenty of examples of companies which have regressed from the FTSE 250 to the FTSE 100 in recent years including um the sportswear chain JD Sports Fashion and online groceries play Ocado. Yeah, and while we're talking about the different markets, we've learned this week that the FTSE 100 could be about to lose one of its big players because Australian miner BHP, the second biggest constituent of the FTSE 100, it's announced that it intends to scrap its dual listing and leave London for Sydney. This really stirred markets up, didn't it, Tom? I mean, it was kind of the final mic drop after a series of huge announcements about the future direction of the company. And and it it was unexpected. It it was, yeah. I mean, I think um, people perhaps, there'd been some speculation about the the move to merge the oil and gas assets with Woodside and actually um, BHP, before the big announcement, along with its results, had kind of signal that they were in discussions on or that was one of the options they were looking at um but it's yes it's it, it did it did come as a bit of a bolt from the blue and it it will be um it's interesting to look at the share price as well so in the morning when they announced the you know a lot of the announcement was focused on the exit from oil and gas the shares went up significantly but in the afternoon when they confirmed that you know this move of of moving the primary listing to Australia and therefore having to exit the FTSE 100, the, the shares um, slipped back a bit and that, that probably told its own story. And we were talking um, just a few minutes ago about companies trying to improve their ESG credentials. And we, we've seen an awful lot of moves from the oil and gas sector to look towards transition. And this certainly seems to be what BHP is going for. They're saying that they want to be part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. And the way they're going to do this, it's reminiscent in a lot of ways of Anglo-Americans spinning off when it got rid of its thermal coal operations, put them in a separate company, Thungella, because BHP plans to give investor shares in the combined venture, which then lets them have a choice about whether they stay invested in oil and gas or or they get out rather than offer an immediate cash payout. And it is 
quite a difficult walk for some of these companies to walk. And PMI has come in for a huge uh, amount of um, criticism for pushing into health and wellness. But when you're talking about pushing these companies towards cleaning up their act, investors are making demands of companies like oil and gas, like PMI, to clean up their act. They're asking for these big changes, and yet in some cases that they come in for criticism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, uh, and it, you kind of feel like, in a way, can you you can't have it both ways. If you're going to criticise the company and look to to push for it to change, then if a company attempts to change, you can't, you know, you can't complain if that's if that's what it's trying to do. I suppose where there may be legitimate questions are, you know, how big is the commitment to change? Is it a case of, you know, um, how things appear rather than trying to make fundamental changes? And, you know, the pace of that change is is the pace of that change ambitious enough. But it, it probably is unfair to criticise these companies for attempting to change. I think coming back to BHP as well, <clears throat> for the mining sector, it's, it you know, it, um, BHP was slightly unusual in having a very big oil and gas operation. And I think, you know, it's talked about wanting to be um, exposed to future facing um, commodities, as, as it put it, and that the mining sector because it it focuses on the metals and you know minerals that will be required for electric vehicle batteries and for the renewables infrastructure it's easier to make a case for them being part of the the solution not part of the problem as as you pointed out earlier and i know the australian government keeps a really close eye on what's happened when these oil and gas fields are, are decommissioned i know there have been issue with woodside before Although Woodside have said that they did everything uh, by the by the book, um, but there will yeah. be a, a lot of pressure um, to make sure that the same level of commitment which BHP has always given is continued. Particularly when you start to see maybe some of the big companies maybe selling off to smaller companies, it's it's a, a big consideration. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I think one thing to consider is is who are the best stewards of these assets, because, you know, they're not going to the nature of them means they can't just be sort of disappeared into thin air, air overnight. So that's a really good point. And I have heard some criticism about the decision to to scrap the dual listing. Um, certainly one investor, LNG, has spoken out saying it's disappointing, but there hasn't been quite the same noise that followed when similar plans that were eventually scrapped by consumer goods giant Unilever were, were hatched to get rid of the dual listing. Um, and and I, it seems to be because in BHP's case, most investors can see that a huge chunk of the country company's revenues are generated in Australia. A new potash project's just been signed off. And that seems to make the move certainly more understandable and probably more palatable. Yeah, agreed. And I think, you know, it's it's widely perceived that it will make it easier for the company to perhaps do kind of deals in the future to perhaps expose or increase its exposure to some of those metals that are crucial to kind of renewables and um, electric vehicles infrastructures as we talked about.
lots of data out this week in the UK from jobs figures to inflation. But in the US this week, it's very much been dominated by retail. And the news that sales dropped slightly last month spooked Wall Street, particularly as they came at the same time we got an update from Home Depot, which reported a considerable drop in sales as the big boom in home improvement we've seen seems to be cooling. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about lost consumer confidence, price hikes, supply issues through Walmart, which also reported earnings yesterday and raised its revenue forecast after a strong quarter. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you've got kind of got the tale of two retailers there and, and Walmart was saying that, you know, particularly for its, its staples, people are going back into store and they are still spending. And I guess when you're talking about must-haves, People don't really have a choice. And and it's only when prices get too ridiculously high that people perhaps say, no, we're not going to pay that. We're going to get an update on how sales are faring in the UK on Friday, a couple of days after we're recording this podcast. But we've already had updates from the British Retail Consortium, which has said that sales have been slowing and footfall falling. So what is in store? How will more disruptions at China's ports filter through? I've been chatting to Catherine Shuttleworth, the CEO of Savvy Marketing, which specialises in retail. And I asked her how she thinks the sector is faring. Now restrictions have all been lifted. Catherine, it's been a bonkers year for retail, or a bonkers two years, really. Um, It was in trouble before the pandemic. And then, obviously, things ground to a serious halt. We're now back to normal, pretty much. How's it looking? Well, well, it's a really mixed picture, isn't it? And as you say, it's bonkers is a great word. I mean, when we were talking sort of two years ago about the state of, of the UK high street, the challenge it faced, you know, the changing scene of retail from, from a shop-based model to an online one, we thought things were pretty tricky then. And we were using words like, you know, unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this before. And now we've had two years where for the first time, you know, in the history of commerce, shops have closed their doors. um, And as they've opened them up, I I think it's been a stuttering, spluttering start back. And there are some, you know, some, some, some people who are doing better than others, but I don't think any retailer would say to it the minute, this is easy. It's hard work. If it's not struggling to get people in the stores, it's struggling to get enough staff to run the stores. And, And I think we're, we're in for a tricky rest of the year, really, until retail bounces back. And it's going to be made more difficult, as you say, not just by staff shortages and, and vacancies, but also by what we expect to be a shortage of supplies to go on shelves because of what's happening mm-hmm. at this port in China. And now is when retailers are, are getting stuff on boats. Absolutely. And, and and it feels, I don't know about you, Danny, but it feels to me like everything you, you kind of want to buy, there's a shortage somewhere. So, you know, if you want to go and buy a shed from Homebase or B&Q, there isn't enough timber, so there aren't sheds. Uh, I was talking on uh, Friday to a, to a sales director of a furniture company, and he was telling me that they're struggling to make sofas. One of them is a wood shortage. Uh, secondly, they've got a foam shortage, you know, the foam cushions that go into sofas because foam has been used for PPE uh, and some of the, the chemicals that go into foam have been used in PPE. And then you talk to other retailers and absolutely their, their dependence on, on China um, as a, a sourcing point 
for goods, particularly for seasonal events, so things like Halloween and Christmas, is really, really fundamental to the way they do business. And that slowdown means that we will see shelves that are much emptier than usual. Um, and it's going to be, you know, when, when retailers sell, you know, buy early, make sure you buy now yeah. before we run out. No one ever believes it. I mean, this year that is going to happen. Halloween stuff will run out very, very early indeed. So you've kind of got to be on your metal as a shopper uh, and get shopping quick. And with that pressure, we're also going to see cost pressures as well, because yeah. uh, I've spoken yeah. to um, some manufacturers and importers who said that the cost of shipping has gone up by 500%, and that's yeah. got to be passed on. Oh, the shipping stuff is absolutely eye-watering. You know, anybody that you've talked to, as you say, that, that uh, imports goods is looking at massive increases in their shipping costs. Um, and that can't be absorbed into the product. It's just not possible to do that any longer. So, you know, the shopper's going to see an increase in prices. The retailer's going to see an increase in prices from, from the people that they buy from, uh, which is going to squeeze on margins because, you know, even though they'll pass it on to the shopper, not all of it will get passed on. Um, and I think it's causing a lot of disruption within retailers' supply chain of costs um, that we probably won't see come through until the end of the year and next year. And it means that, you know, some retailers are going to have mammoth cash flow problems. They're going to buy less. Um, not, that means, obviously, they're not going to sell as much. And we could see some retailers getting into serious, serious financial trouble, I think. Uh, perhaps people that we'd be surprised by that we thought were in better shape, but because of their dependency on shipping, um, that could change their business model completely. So I, I guess that this is where online really comes into its own in many ways, because the overheads aren't as great. No, and, and you know, one of the things about the lockdown was, of course, we became entirely dependent online. So, you know, even those sort of, I suppose, online laggards, the people who you'd said, oh, you know, I still want to shop on the high street, or I'm not so sure about online, have switched. And, you know, during the switch, I mean, thank goodness that online held up. Can you imagine if it was 25 years ago and we'd had this pandemic? You know, how on earth would we have, <laughs> have coped? And we wouldn't have been able to buy anything, would we? We'd have, you know, would have been walking for, for miles to shops. So it would have been dreadful. So just yeah, like the one... queues at the supermarkets. I mean, I was just talking yesterday oh. about that experience. There was a month where you used to dread driving to the car park of your supermarket because you know mm. that you'd be queuing around it. Yeah, it was, I mean, they, you, how quickly we forget, but you're absolutely right. But you kind of dreaded it, but it was the only thing you could do, wasn't it? So there was a sort of entertainment factor in all of that, I suppose, really. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think online has, has been a real lifeline for shoppers, but also has been a way that retailers have been able to, you know, really re-communicate with their customers. And I, I was reading the other day about the chief exec of B&Q was saying that he was amazed about how their business had pivoted literally overnight. So, you know, they, they moved another something like 9,000 items online within about six hours. So they changed their business really quickly. And I think you know, some of the positives that have come out of, of, of the situation that we've been in is that retail organisations who've always said, oh, we're very lean, you know, we're very quick. You know, they say to you, Danny, oh, yes, we're very lean businesses. We move very, very quickly. Turns out they didn't move that quickly at all. And COVID has necessitated them doing things they maybe would never have done, you know, moving technology on, going into new platforms. So I think for some retailers, it's kind of been a, a, 
a start of a new dawn. Do you know what I mean? That they're, they're working in a really, really different way. Um, and online is now going to be a much more critical part of, of any retailer's business than ever before. So some in better shape than maybe they were before and, and some potentially um, looking at uh, a pretty dicey winter period. For hmm. investors thinking about retail right now, uh, many shied away when we had the lockdown initially because you know, the the shutters came down and and people just thought this is going to be impacted really badly. Mm. Looking now, are businesses relatively healthy compared to where they were? I mean, that might be a strange thing to say, but as you say, some have really pivoted. Yeah, they have. And, And, you know, whilst I still don't get me wrong, I still think it's tough for retailers in the short term. I think the medium to longer term prospects are, are pretty bright. So, you know, you look at businesses that got online at the core, um, you know, businesses like Boohoo, their growth's spectacular. You know, they've picked up Debenhams. They're looking at different ways of, of, of increasing their footprint with the shopper. Um, there's, there's some really strong investments you could make in those areas. And then, you know, if we look at businesses that have really, if you like, if, if you can have a good good covid you know if you can have a good lockdown obviously the grocery retailers have had a good lockdown because there was nowhere else to go so you know yes there've been massive costs haven't there there've been huge costs on those businesses but they will ride it and i think what will be important for some of the businesses who, who've had really big wins in covid some of the big listed businesses is how do they behave with their customers now it's over um, you know, how do they manage that message moving forward? Because, blimey, if you had a good COVID next year, your like for likes are going to be under a bit of pressure. Um, but, but retail in certain sectors is still worth an investment. You know, it's, it's, it's growing. People are going to come out of COVID and they are going to want to do things. You know, they're going to want to go to places. So the much maligned shopping centre, if they get their offer right and they make it interesting, people may well go back. So I think there's a bit of re-evaluation of the way we live our lives, which for some of the big listed retailers is, is pretty good news because if they can weather the storm, if they can sell the products that we want, if they've got the might to be able to buy well and to work on their shipping costs better than perhaps some of the smaller retailers, they could be in pretty strong shape next year as some of the competitors fall, some of the smaller ones. So it is a bit of a mixed picture, really. But, you know, I look at businesses like Next. They've continued to trade well. Um, you know, their, their business with their online bringing in other brands. I think that's been a really interesting thing about how businesses like Next and Marks and Spencers have started selling other brands on their websites and have started to have a much more mature and grown-up conversation about how they can become the vendor for brands. Um, and that makes me, the shoppers, stick with Next or Marks and Spencers more. And I think that's perhaps what COVID has done. It's allowed us to have more sensible conversations commercially that in the longer term will add, add shareholder value, which has to be a good thing. Catherine, been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. All that talk about online shopping has got me thinking about all those parcels popping through people's doors and unfortunately also opening doors for scammers so talk to me about smishing Danny it's not a term that I've come across before it's a great word but a really really awful practice and basically it's when criminals pretend to be trusted organizations and then they send a text saying 
interact with me. Um, the big one, which has been, certainly I've had uh, probably one a day of these things, but then my kids do tend to do a lot of online shopping. Um, it, it says that there's a parcel on its way for you, but it can't be delivered unless you make a small payment. However, here's the issue. If you do make the payment, then that could well be a scam and your identity might then be stolen or if you've made that payment, scammers then contact you pretending to be the bank saying, hey, we've noticed that you've made this payment and you're now in danger of having your money stolen. So, you know, we need to move your account and then the money gets stolen. And what you say about being able to spot these things, because I've seen a lot on social media with people saying, you know, just be careful. It's not always easy to figure out that these things are fraudulent, particularly when you're busy, you maybe just catch it and you think, oh yeah, I'm expecting something. Oh yeah, I'm expecting something by that courier. Right, I'll just hit this. It's only £2.50. And there are millions of these things flying about. So you do need to take care. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose the key here is to to take a minute, don't rush, and if in doubt, make a call to the company that claims to have sent the message and, and always use the information on their official website, not the number that's been provided on, on the text. Um, and I suppose, I guess, you know, with unsolicited calls from your bank, if, if some, you know, it probably should ring alarm bells if they're asking you to move a, a big sum of money um, like that. And Jenny Owen is here. And after last year's lockdown scuppered many weddings, the season is currently in full swing. You've just been to a wedding, Jen. Yeah, yeah. Last week I went to my friend's wedding, which was absolutely lovely. It was nice to be back on the dance floor, in all honesty. (laughs) Well, I feel like I haven't been to any good weddings recently. It seems to be the wrong time. Most of my friends are are, are now married. So, yeah, I, I kind of fancy a really good boogie. Um, But we often talk about the costs involved and how to save for big events. But some couples, the very lucky ones, can get a slice of the action back, Jenny. Yeah, so a tasty story caught my eye the other day, although in reality it's probably pretty stale by now. A slice of Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer's wedding cake sold at auction recently. It was preserved in cling film by a member of the Queen Mother's household and fetched a huge £1,850. It's a slither of one of their 23 official wedding cakes and was (laughs) bought by a mystery bidder in Leeds. Um, If you're looking for something equally inedible and still keen on bagging some royal wedding grub, a Charles and Diana wedding bun was sold at auction for only £15. I didn't know about these buns before, but apparently they're thrown during national celebrations, including royal weddings, and uh, they're coated in a preservative varnish, so it's still probably best <laughs> left uneaten. Be quite hard, I would think. Oh, yeah, you don't want to bite into that. Or, um, or get hit by one. Yeah, true. Um, But if you are looking for something a bit fresher um, than a varnished bun, um, a portion of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's wedding cake from 2011 sold in 2014 for nearly £6,000 in California. But then again, they only had eight cakes in total. Okay, well, that that I suppose is more like it, but I'm not entirely sure that you'd want to eat that one either. 
Uh, next week, Laura Souter and Tom Selby will be at the helm, and Laura will be chatting to Georgia Stewart from Tomello. Hope you can join us then. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes, and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.